We were originally going to do this the way the other panels had been done, with a table and, and people speaking for a little while. But we thought um, the opioid issue uh, is, is kind of special and feels particularly daunting and urgent right now. And so maybe a conversation would be a little better. Um, I will read biographies really quickly. I wrote these in very large fonts, so I'll get them right. Uh, to my left, Zachary Belitho is a former assistant US attorney in the Eastern District of Tennessee and a faculty member at Campbell University Law School, where he teaches classes on criminal law, criminal procedure, evidence, and trial advocacy. Uh, he is on sabbatical at the moment to serve as counsel to the Deputy Attorney General. Uh, Zach, thank you for coming to the Lion's Den today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, next, Leo Boletsky is an Associate Professor of Law and Health Sciences at Northeastern University, where he holds dual appointments in the School of Law in the Bouvet College of Health Sciences. His expertise is on the use of law to improve health with focus on drug policy, reducing the spread of HIV and other infectious diseases, and the role of the criminal justice system in shaping public health outcomes. Last but not least, by any means, uh, Jeff Myron is a senior lecturer and director of undergraduate studies in the Department of Economics at Harvard University, as well as a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. His field of expertise is the economics of libertarianism. Um, and as any Myron fans know, he has advocated for manila libertarian policies, including legalizing all drugs and allowing failing banks to go bankrupt. That last part's not really relevant, but um, <laughs> not enough people who feel that way. Uh, so who, I just want to gauge the room a little bit here, know the audience. Does anybody know someone? I, I kind of do want you to put your hands up, either through, uh, by blood or, or marriage, who has struggled with, with opioids. Uh, this is very surprising. I, I mean, it's not a ton, but for Washington, D.C., that's pretty impressive. Uh, much of what we know about opioid use, it, it corresponds to low socioeconomic status, um, mental health, childhood abuse. Uh, if you look at the counties with the highest overdose rates, um, you also see a lot of people underwater on their mortgages. You see unemployment rates between 20% at the low end, all the way up to 35%. You see a lot of single parent households. Um, this is not uniquely or specifically or exclusively a poor person problem, but as with a lot of drug problems that we declare to be epidemics, uh, it is affecting people who have the fewest resources for dealing with this problem privately and outside of the criminal justice system. So uh, I want to kind of keep that in mind. Um, and, I, and I know those of you who raised your hands are obviously keeping in mind that we're, we're talking about real people here. Uh, historically, we haven't always talked about drug epidemics as if they were about real people. Um, it's certainly easy to demonize the substances. Uh, and it is unfortunately very easy to demonize the people who, who use them. Um, so, to get started, enough, enough lecturing here. Um, I kind of want to start, and everybody can obviously take a shot at this, uh, at, at what, we're, what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. Because it feels right now, if you look, fentanyl deaths uh, over the last year doubled from just over 10,000 to over 20,000. Heroin deaths went up. Um, Opioid deaths are slowly, if you talk about prescription opioids, uh, are slowly ticking up. Um, and even deaths from other drugs, such as cocaine, have increased slightly. 
probably because of the uh, inclusion of fentanyl in those things as well. So uh, it might be really easy to conclude that we are doing nothing right anywhere in the country, but I'm, I don't think that's true, and I'd, and I'd like everybody here to take a crack at, at, at what we're doing right, and, um, and, and we'll have what we're doing wrong as a separate question. Jeff? I don't think we're doing very much right. There are limited attempts to expand uh, medication-assisted therapies, meaning buprenorphine and methadone, but not on a large scale, and not nearly to the degree I think would be necessary in order to make a significant dent in the rate of opioid deaths. So basically, I think we're doing exactly the wrong thing, but I guess I'll hold that until... <laughs> Toss but fair. I like it. Leo? Uh, I think there are a couple of things that are can be encouraging progress. So, uh, you know, thinking from kind of the end game, which is stopping people from actually dying from an overdose, we're expanding access to naloxone, which is a great thing. I've been working on that for over a decade. We're finally seeing naloxone expanded uh, on a major scale. Uh, we're seeing the passage of Good Samaritan laws that shield people from uh, being charged with drug-related possession crimes. Uh, when they call for help during overdose. So it's something that we want to encourage. We want to see more people seek help. Um, and a lot of times people are uh, reticent to seek help because they're afraid of legal consequences if they do call. Um, we're seeing uh, more medication-assisted treatment. Um, we need a lot more. There's money coming down the pike to increase, to rapidly scale up access. Um, and we're seeing also part of the healthcare reform, kind of going back to what you were saying, Mike, I think there's a lot of the opioid crisis that is actually not related to opioid access per se. It's, it's really a, a sort of a structural issue. Um, one of the things that is a key driver of opioid misuse is people self-medicating for health problems, whether they're physical or mental health problems. Um, opioids are a great salve, if you will, um, to take care of a bunch of different needs and to help people address those problems. We need uh, high-quality, affordable, accessible health care, and uh, unfortunately, that's out of reach for a lot of Americans, and uh, maybe uh, you know, that, that could be getting worse. So we want to definitely see people get help for a bunch of uh, health-related issues, uh, substance use disorder is one of them, but that's certainly not uh, the end of the story. In addition to the uh, items that Leo has mentioned, I think that prescription drug monitoring programs, or PDMPs, that have been established uh, in 49 of the 50 states uh, is a positive development. It's going to help us to ensure that individuals are not being overprescribed opiates. It will stop uh, some of the doctor shopping that may have contributed to the development of the problem in the beginning. We're also seeing uh, more attention focused on the issue of fentanyl. Uh, there was a time period in which you heard that a lot of these deaths were related to heroin, and now we're realizing that it was not just heroin. A lot of it was heroin that was laced with fentanyl. We're now getting our, our arms around more of what we're seeing, and because we're getting our arms more around what we're seeing, we're taking steps uh, both at the federal and state levels, to deal with the fentanyl problem in terms of uh, the Department of Justice has been actively working with China, uh, which is where much of the fentanyl is 
developed. We've uh, made strides there in getting China to schedule some of the fentanyl analogs in the precursor chemicals that are used to uh, develop fentanyl. Uh, lots of other efforts are underway in terms of the interdiction of fentanyl, the hope being that if we can stop both the prescription drug problem that, be, that is where many people become hooked on opioids, and if we can stem the flow of fentanyl, uh, combined with many of the items that Leo mentioned, that we will start to hopefully see a downturn in uh, the number of overdose deaths, which is, of course, uh, very concerning to all of us. Uh, now for what we're doing wrong, I, I feel like we could have a conference dedicated to just this issue. Um, but I'll ask that everybody maybe, maybe pick a few things in particular that they're uh, particularly concerned about. Um, that means by the time it gets to you, Zach, you're going to have pretty slim pickings, but uh, I trust you'll think of something. Jeff? So I think what we're doing wrong is trying to keep people from accessing opioids legally. I think that what causes the harm, mostly, is not people using opioids, it's people who use opioids under conditions of prohibition or substantial restrictions. The vast majority of people who've gotten medical prescriptions use those opioids during the course of the prescription and stopped. Many stopped early because they didn't need to take them anymore and they weren't so addictive as the conventional wisdom. It's when people are cut off, people who either had continued pain and wanted to keep using opioids, but the medical system or the legal system said no, or people who got physically dependent and didn't want to be forced to go through withdrawal in a cold turkey way. Those are the people who went to the black market or other diversion sources and didn't know what dosage they were taking. Those are people who ended up using opioids in combination with other medications like benzodiazepines and alcohol, making the risk of overdose much, much larger, something much less likely to happen in a fully legal market where you're talking to your doctor about the fact that you're taking opioids, your doctor's saying, remember not to mix this with alcohol or other medications and so on and so forth. We're getting extra overdoses because people are not able, as they would in a legal market, to go through withdrawal slowly, to say, I'm going to taper my dose over three months or six months or 20 years because the long-term negative side effects of being on opioids are simply hard to document. Never mind not very serious, they are in fact very hard to document. So what we're doing wrong is outlawing opioids. What we should do right is legalize them. Uh, I actually have to agree. I think that one of the reasons why you're seeing uh, an enormous uptick in fentanyl-related deaths is because of um, pressures applied by interdiction. Um, when you have a huge, uh, huge demand for a certain substance and it's a black market substance and you apply pressures to the black market, um, the natural response of drug trafficking organizations is to basically transition to a contraband that's a lot more profitable and a lot more smaller in volume and higher higher in profit, and that, I think that's essentially what we're seeing with, with the rise of fentanyl, where um, there was a, an enormous amount of demand generated by uh, a variety of different factors, and people turned to heroin, the market for heroin grew, and then we applied a lot of interdiction pressures uh, that made the drug trafficking organizations switch over to fentanyl. So I think um, I, I have to agree with, uh, with that point. So um, in the context of the... So there's a lot that we're doing wrong um, related to you know, health insurance and structural factors like economic 
inequality and other things. Uh, but in context of today's discussion, I wanted to highlight the just three things uh, that you all may or may not be familiar with that I think, you know, especially this audience might find of interest. Um, so uh, one is a, a major uptick in uh, drug-induced homicide laws and prosecutions. Um, so these laws and prosecutions basically focus on situations where there's an overdose that occurs. Um, the uh, person who is uh, connected to the victim of an overdose is then charged. Either this, you know, the theory is that it's a dealer who sells the drugs and the person then dies. Um, the dealer gets charged with essentially murder. Um, you know, there's a variety of state and federal statutes. These prosecutions have uh, risen very sharply. I wanted to throw some slides on, and it didn't work out. So if you're interested in this, email me, and I'll send you some information that we're right now doing a tracking these prosecutions. There's a major uptick um, starting in about uh, 2003, um, going up very sharply in 2006. Uh, you know, 2007, we have partial data. 2006 sees m many more of these than uh, previously. Um, so the problems with uh, drug-induced homicide prosecutions are several. Um, you know, going back to the previous speaker, you know, in terms of um, in terms of deterrence, uh, you know, the idea, the theory is that slamming somebody with a 20-year mandatory minimum will uh, basically have deterrence, incapacitation, um, and retribution effects. Um, deterrence, we don't really have any evidence that these kinds of prosecutions deter drug dealing. Um, we don't have any evidence that these prosecutions actually uh, incapacitate, well, they certainly incapacitate the person for 20 years, but we don't have any evidence that that actually helps address the black market supply. Um, retribution certainly is a, uh, you know, a lot of times the prosecutors will say, well, we, we're doing right by the victim's family. Uh, they, you know, their, their, their kid is, or their father, mother, whatever, is, is dead. Someone needs to pay the price. And so we're taking this person, um, the dealer, and we're charging them with the death, and they're going to go away for a very long time. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a perfectly reasonable rationale. Um, I think that on balance, we have to look at the overall effects of these prosecutions. So uh, first, you're spending, you know, over a million dollars to put someone in prison for a very long time. How could that money be spent much more judiciously. Um, second, um, oftentimes the person you're putting away is not even actually a dealer. So in the data that we collected, um, actually the majority of these prosecutions target friends, partners, or other people who delivered the drugs to the person who deceased, not a dealer in any stretch of imagination. So in other words, the people who are being charged are just, you know, caught up basically in the situation. And then the final thing I'll mention from a public health perspective, um, these prosecutions are a disaster because they essentially go at complete cross-purposes with efforts to get people to call for help when people overdose. So right now, about only about half of the overdoses, uh, people call for help because they're afraid of what will happen. Uh, when you have a situation where every overdose is being investigated as a homicide, um, police show up, the homicide unit show up, shows up, you have investigations, the prosecutor does a press uh, conference saying we're, we're slamming this person with a lot of uh, time. Um, 
that sends a very much chilling message to people who are drug users or whose loved ones are drug users to dealers saying, don't stay with the person. You know, it, it, it actually, you could go away for a very long time. So from public health perspective, it's, it's pretty bad. Uh, I don't want to hog the floor, but I'll just very, very quickly mention a couple other things. So prescription drug monitoring programs that Zach mentioned, great in theory. Um, you know, in theory, they're supposed to help coordinate care. They're supposed to highlight the kinds of things that, um, you know, where if you're using benzodiazepines and opioids together, they could flag that and say this person is high risk. Um, in reality, they're used primarily as a government surveillance tool. Um, law enforcement access varies across the U.S. Um, in terms of the barriers that, you know, this very private information is available to law enforcement. There's been two uh, cases one in Oregon, one in Utah, that basically, in federal court, that basically extinguished federal protections for those data when it comes to DEA access. In other words, DEA can access prescription drug monitoring data on the state level without any judicial review. They only have to issue administrative subpoena. And that's something that is uh, highly problematic from my perspective. Um, I'll stop there. All right, I'll get back to you. Okay. You can say more later. All right. I'm going to shock everyone by saying I don't agree that those are the problems. Uh, so there's your shock for the day. Uh, but I don't want to, you know, for, in terms of your, actual, your question about what's, what are we not doing right or what's, what's going wrong, I think a couple of things uh, where vast improvement is needed. We do need to improve our treatment options and the way in which people are treated. We, we certainly need to make sure that individuals are getting the treatment that they need, and we haven't quite figured out how to do that effectively uh, across the country. And, and I know there are other uh, new uh, types of MATs or medical-assisted treatment options that are becoming available, and we need to make sure that we are doing everything that we can to get people the treatment that they need so that we can get them out of the cycle of addiction. Uh, we're also still uh, in great need of uh, getting ahead of the curve, if you will, in terms of the development of the new synthetic uh, opioids. Uh, the, uh, the way that the Controlled Substances Act works is items are scheduled, and they're scheduled by a chemical compound. And what's currently happening, it, happening is once a new fentanyl or a new synthetic drug is scheduled, then the clandestine laboratories tweak the substance, and it is no longer scheduled, which therefore prevents uh, the DEA and other law enforcement agencies from effectively dealing with it the same way if it was a scheduled substance. Uh, so we need to continue to look for legislative fixes in ways uh, in which we can be better at staying ahead of that curve. We also need to improve uh, our ability to move up the chain in investigations. Uh, certainly, the people that the Department of Justice is in interested in prosecuting federally are the people that are uh, developing this stuff, making this stuff, uh, and sending it over here uh, to kill Americans. And on that front, uh, just this week, the department announced uh, the first prosecutions of two Chinese nationals who uh, are directly involved in the production of fentanyl and the shipment of fentanyl uh, to the United States. And we hope to continue that success and to be able to get the people that are producing this and sending it over here uh, to the United States. If I could just respond uh, very briefly to the, to the point um, regarding legalization and that the regulation is what has caused the problem and that these opioids are somehow themselves not uh, the problem. As a former prosecutor in the Eastern District of Tennessee during the time period 
when OxyContin was becoming all the rave, I saw firsthand the devastation that was being wreaked in these communities from people who were addicted to these substances that they were obtaining legally from doctors. Uh, we were experiencing significant problems at that time, not only with overdoses, uh, but also with individuals who were robbing pharmacies at gunpoint to get the substances. Uh, those problems were existing when we had the ability to go to doctors who were passing this out easily uh, in the pill mill fashion. Uh, so I, I don't think that the answer is not to regulate these substances. Um, perhaps uh, there, I, I don't think there's any denying that people have migrated from prescription drugs to heroin, and then the heroin is now being laced with fentanyl. That's an undeniable fact. But what we have to be concerned about are two different populations of people here. We have those who are already suffering from addiction, and we have those who are not addicted. And we need to make sure that we're also concerned about those people who are currently not addicted and making sure that the way in which doctors and healthcare professionals are operating, that we're not addicting more people. And so the, the reason why we are, have cracked down in our regulating doctors and the ability to prescribe these substances is because four out of five heroin addicts report that they first started using prescription opioids. So if we're able to turn down the number of prescription opioids that are available, we're going to be able to reduce the number of people who are addicted and hopefully reduce the number of people who transition from prescription drugs uh, to fentanyl. Yes, we still have this population of people who are already addicted, and we need to figure out ways to effectively address them. The US Department of Justice, the federal government, is not interested in jailing addicts. Uh, we are interested in prosecuting and jailing the people who are making millions of dollars by killing United States citizens, by people who are hurting uh, our mothers, fathers, and children on a daily basis, and that's what we're interested in going after. Uh, I think Zach brings up an interesting point here, which is the extent to which all of these uh, actors in the system are mostly isolated um, and in terms of the, both the tools and uh, sort of incentives for each person in this system. I mean, we have users, we have um, you know, illicit uh, actors in the market. We have the legitimate medical community and pharmacies. Um, we have law enforcement. Uh, it, it may be too big an ask to, for the panelists to uh, come up with an, a way to at least better exchange information between these, some of these hubs uh, without also uh, violating Fourth Amendment or sort of exposing people to uh, punishment. Um, but I am kind of curious, um, and maybe I'll, I'll start with you, Zach, just because you did spend that time as a federal prosecutor. When you sort of looked at the landscape in eastern Tennessee, um, and you're also, you told me before that you're from Ohio, which is another place that has been hit really hard, and I also know Jeff and Leo are in, in Boston and outside of the Boston suburbs have also been hit hard by this. Um, what, did, did, did you feel isolated? Did users seem isolated to you? I mean, when you were thinking about it, it does seem like we need sort of an integrated approach to this, um, which sounds like the craziest thing in the world to say uh, if you consider that this is probably the most amicable I've ever seen people with this different viewpoints on stage before. I mean, generally, we're, we're not all actually having this conversation, um, at least together. Um, but, um, you know, so when you, when you think about sort of uh, 
what was missing in the Eastern District of Tennessee when you're thinking about, I, there's this population that's been devastated by prescription, and maybe initially by prescription opioids, in part because the communities are so poor, uh, then heroin came in, then fentanyl from Chinese distributors. When you looked at that, I'm assuming at some point you maybe felt some frustration, maybe some hopelessness. What did you want? What did you think, you know, in addition to your own powers and resources as a law enforcement officer, what felt like it could have made that better? I wish I knew the answer to that question. Uh, in, at your, in your most desperate moments, what did you want? I, I think what you want at some level is a crystal ball um, because uh, I don't think that we had any idea, especially when I, when I was handling these cases and seeing these cases, uh, that the, it was going to progress to where it is today. Uh, I don't think we had a sense of the scope of the problem because you're dealing with your cases and your investigations and you don't necessarily know how widespread this is, at least at that time, at that time period. And I think that uh, if we could have known that how this problem was going to pr progress, where it was going to end up, uh, perhaps we could have been more forward thinking in some of the steps that were taken. But at the time, you're just dealing with what you're dealing with at the moment. Sure. What's in front of you? Yeah. Leah? I wanted to kind of step back for a second and, and talk a little bit about language. So one of the things that I find interesting about this crisis is the word epidemic that gets thrown around. Um, you know, epidemic fundamentally is a contagion. It's an infectious disease. You know, someone, like I study public health, uh, you know, the AIDS crisis was an epidemic. The prescription drug slash opioid issue is not truly an epidemic. Uh, but it's, it seems like it is because it's, you know, exploding and it seems like to be catching on. So uh, one thing that I think rhetorically is interesting is to think about, well, if it is an epidemic, then why do we bring law enforcement uh, in in such a central role in addressing it? Um, you know, it, 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 from a criminal justice reform standpoint, there's a point, you know, the kind of a, a point to be made, but even just from a rhetorical standpoint, why do we rely on law enforcement tools? So um, Zach is exactly right in that a lot of times when law enforcement came in to shut down pill mills, and I would not ever advocate for pill mills. I think opioids are, are an important but risky tool uh, in a medical toolbox. They need to be prescribed judiciously uh, and, and monitored very closely. You don't want people handing them out willy-nilly. Uh, they're not aspirin. And uh, so the idea that pill mills should function, um, you know, I don't know if this is what Jeff would advocate, but I'm not sure I would say that we need pill mills all over the place and, you know, that will fix the problem. I don't think that's, that's true. Um, but if you're going to come in as a law enforcement agency, shut down a pill mill, um, the patient population of that pill mill and, by extension, probably a lot of other people in that community probably have opioid dependence and or addiction. Those two things are different. This is another thing about language. So, you know, addiction and dependence are two different things. You can be dependent on insulin. That doesn't mean you're addicted to insulin. It doesn't mean you're engaging in compulsive behavior to get the insulin, like holding, you know, pharmacy at gunpoint. Um, so, so from a, you know, if you ask an epidemiologist or someone who studies addiction what's going to happen to a pill mill when you shut it down, they're going to say, well, those people are going to need substitution. 
right? So they're going to need to find an alternative source of those opioids because they're not going to be feeling very good when they lose their supply. And be, that is also, that's because of the, the withdrawal symptoms that people feel, but also uh, because of the underlying pain issues or mental health issues or whatever else. So by failing to engage people who actually study these issues from a health perspective, which is what you need, um, law enforcement in many communities basically shut down the supply and precipitated the kind of transition that we're now seeing happening all over the place. And to underline, I think it's important to also underscore, that we now have evidence that, that uh, very vividly demonstrate, that demonstrates that people are not initiating with prescription drugs to the same extent that they did. So the point that Zach Zach made is real. You don't. You, again, you want to be judicious in the way that you're prescribing your opioids, but you don't want to make that process so restrictive that you push people towards initiating from the black market. And we're now seeing that the number, the percent of people initiating from the black market went from. Uh, I can send people to study if they're interested, um, and this is from my recollection from eight uh, percent in 2005 to something like 35% in, two, uh, in 2015, meaning that that number of people who started opioid use from heroin has skyrocketed. Okay, so people are not, it's not just the access, or it's not even principally the access from, from prescription, uh, you know, prescription being uh, issued unnecessarily that people are getting dependent or addicted to opioids. It's underlying issues that are pushing people towards opioid use. And we need to, unless we address those underlying issues, people are going to continue starting opioid use, or they're going to use alcohol, or they're going to use cocaine, or whatever the drug of choice may be. We have a lot of very, very important structural issues in this country, and people are going to gravitate towards things that make them feel better. And unless we figure out ways to address those issues, we're going to be continue playing whack-a-mole with whatever drug is the drug choice of the day. So I'm not sure if there's a specific question to me, but if not, I... No, 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 please. Uh, always welcome. Respond to a bunch of things. So on the prescription drug monitoring program, so that's an example of trying to use restrictions to reduce a, the number of overdose deaths, to reduce prescribing and therefore overdose deaths. The evidence from a large number of papers in standard journals suggests that it has had some effect in reducing prescribing, has had no statistically significant effect in reducing deaths, and indeed, the more recent studies seem to find an increase in the number of deaths as a result of the prescription drug monitoring programs, which is exactly what, in my view, more restrictions, more deaths okay, would imply. In terms of why I'm advocating this legalization model, of course, I'm a libertarian. That's my instinct. But there's also incredibly consistent evidence that more restrictions leads to more deaths or worse or increased risk from consuming a substance. That happened with alcohol prohibition in the United States. From 20 to 33, alcohol use declined modestly, but deaths from use of alcohol went up enormously. That's exactly the prediction of the libertarian view. In Portugal, when they decriminalized almost all substances, they saw a dramatic reduction in the number of deaths associated with drug use. Okay. France ex rapidly expanded buprenorphine starting in about 2001 and again saw a rapid reduction in the number of opioid deaths. 
morphine maintenance, something that was practiced for a long time before the federal government started outlawing it in the 1920s, was associated not with increased deaths, with people getting their morphine from doctors on a regular basis and functioning normally in society. And last but not least, the whole MAT framework, the methadone or buprenorphine-assisted therapy, is a form of legalizations. It's more opioids leading to fewer bad outcomes. It's a small partial legalization. So again, is exactly suggesting that the more we make these things accessible and allow people to get them legally in known dosage from a reliable supplier and so on, the less likely they are to have bad effects. The reason nobody holds up a CVS pharmacy to get their insulin dose is because the doctors make it possible for them to do so legally. They're not being cut off. It's being cut off, which leads to a large uh, amount of the negative effects. On the issue of whether we should have been prescribing nearly as much as we did, okay, it's certainly likely that some people became physically dependent. Some even ended up in unpleasant or, or very negative addictions as a result of it. But don't forget, a ton of people, the vast majority of all these extra people who got opioids had their pain relieved to a greater degree. They were able to function better in society. They were able to hold on to their jobs, uh, reduce their disabilities they might have, and so on and so forth. So there's huge benefits of all that increase in opioid prescribing, even if there was some increase uh, in costs. Um, OK, let me stop there for now. If you want to keep going, I actually do have a question for you. <laughs> so I uh, failed to introduce myself up front. My name is Mike Riggs. I'm a reporter at Reason Magazine, which is a libertarian publication. Uh, and I have uh, sort of struggled internally over, um, I mean, I'm from Central Florida. I have family members who have been addicted. My wife's mother died of an opioid overdose. I have thought about this issue a lot. And I have sort of struggled internally with, um, we know what, a, what better outcomes looks like, right? So like uh, Maya Salavitz, who probably would have been a better moderator than I am, uh, had a piece out in Scientific American recently that found um, counties in the United States that had a, the highest levels of social capital. Uh, these are uh, communities with high levels of trust, high levels of civic participation, uh, such that they vote, um, high levels of employment, uh, homeownership with equity, all these things. These communities had, were 83% less likely uh, to have high overdose rates or to see uh, dramatic increases in overdose rates year over year. So there is a very real divide here between people who have resources and people who don't. Um, as a libertarian, I think a lot about what is the obligation of communities, of nonprofits, and of the state uh, in bringing resources to bear on this issue, in part because uh, it's at this nexus of weakness for the United States. Uh, ideally, it would require a lot of collaboration between different types of public and non uh, public agencies as well as non-governmental organizations. And there, uh, ideally, we would have a lot of interplay with the US healthcare system, things like medication-assisted therapy. It's not cheap. Naloxone is not cheap. None of these things, the screening, um, and, and a thing that often gets left out when we talk about buprenorphine and methadone is that the, the method of delivery that has the highest success rate is in conjunction with psychotherapy. So when I think about how we deliver that, and, and Jeff, I wonder if you've also thought about this or struggled with it, um, who pays for that? 
How, how do we pay for that? Who do we want to pay for that? I mean, and also does addressing this issue require addressing a bunch of others, right? Because there's a universe in which methadone is not expensive and naloxone is not expensive, and you can pay $30 an hour to see a psychotherapist instead of, two, then, I mean, minus $200 an hour. But, you know, like, that, that is a real world, but it seems very far away from the one we're in right now. I would say the question of what social, societal resources should be spent, government resources should be spent, on helping people who can't afford treatment on their own, and so on and so forth. Those are somewhat hard questions. But all of those things would be much, much cheaper if we first were in a legal environment. The number of people having problems because of those of opioid use or other subjects would be much smaller if we were in a legal environment. So the legalization is a necessary step in order to be able to have useful discussions. In a legal environment, a lot of people will be much less likely to hide their misuse. That will make it easier for them to deal with because they can be honest with their family. They can be honest with their employers. They don't have to worry about telling their doctors that they're using these substances and so on and so forth. So yes, there will still be hard questions. To what degree should government be subsidizing health care or treatment? My answer is not much, if at all. But okay, it's still a much easier question once the goods are legal. I think it makes sense to go back to the framework that Renee and, and others highlighted in the morning session, which is evidence-based approaches. So with limited resources, we should be focusing on things that we know to work and things that don't work, uh, we should be leaving behind. So, you know, if you're, if you're going to spend $1.2 million to put away a friend of a drug user who dies of an overdose, um, that those funds are, can be much better spent in other ways. And in fact, um, buprenorphine methadone treatment isn't very expensive. It's extremely cost effective. And in, in a context, you know, kind of from a libertarian standpoint, um, fiscally conservative people should advocate for things that we know have a very good cost-effectiveness profile. Um, a lot of the criminal justice approaches, not only do they not work, but they are counterproductive. Um, there's also a lot of uh, innovation percolating right now uh, on the local level in terms of police responses to overdose. So we heard a little bit about that in the, in the morning panel in, in terms of you know, police uh, extending um, treatment availability or other services to people who overdose and uh, connecting people to treatment and so forth, police administering naloxone. Um, so there's, there's been a lot of pressure on the local level for police and, and, and criminal justice actors to get involved. Um, that needs to be evaluated. That has never been evaluated. We're just kind of shooting in the dark. Um, very, very well-intentioned approaches. But if I had to guess, then, you know, if, if getting treatment, access to treatment means showing up at a police station and getting police to help you find um, uh, a treatment program, I would say that it's going to work in a place like Gloucester, Massachusetts, but probably not in Ferguson, Missouri, where people probably will not show up to the police station to seek treatment. Um, we don't want to create barriers for people who have been traumatized by the criminal justice system um, to access health care. And in terms of the investment, I think we have, for better or for worse, 
a system in this country of paying for healthcare, which is through the health insurance patchwork that we have. Um, so we actually probably don't need, you know, right now there's a lot of money down, coming down the pike from the federal level to help pay for drug treatment. It, it actually reinforces this um, artificial bifurcation between healthcare and then drug treatment. Drug treatment is healthcare. Just integrate it into one, get the healthcare system to pay for it, and then, you know, basically we need to completely do away with the drug treatment system in this country because it's completely failed. So um, those two things need to be integrated, value-based care, uh, you know, care that's evidence-based and care that's uh, cost-effective needs to be emphasized, and uh, that's the way that we should proceed. Zach, it just occurred to me, were you at the Justice Department when the Smart on Crime initiative was launched? No. Before or after? I was there before and after. Before and after, okay. <laughs> so I, I'm kind of curious, uh, a lot of the policies that we're talking about would in a way be top down, right? They would be Congress would change a law, uh, we would get an executive order, we would get a memorandum from an attorney general, and this would probably be the case everywhere. It, it, this would be legislation at the state level, this would be a police chief adopting a new policy in there. And I, I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit um, about how policy change um, because there is so much overlap with uh, federal drug sentencing and this crisis. Um, I hope crisis is okay instead of epidemic, although... I it certainly is a crisis. Yeah. Um, uh, how, how does that process work? So you were there before Smart on Crime, you were there after. What is that like when, when the Attorney General says to uh, U.S. attorneys and assistant U.S. attorneys, assistant U.S. attorneys are our mainline prosecutors, they're the ones who, you know, they're in the courthouse. Um, how does that work? How does that process play out? So traditionally the way that it works is the attorney general or the deputy attorney general puts out a memorandum to the field. Uh, the memorandum is delivered uh, to the United States attorney. And then in each of the uh, 94 federal judicial districts, the United States attorney essentially has the responsibility for carrying out the policy change that the attorney general has announced by way of the memorandum. Now, uh, each United States attorney is a presidentially appointed, Senate-confirmed official, and uh, they're usually given flexibility to uh, implement the policy consistent with the needs and uh, community that they serve. Um, but that's the general process. Is it's really the United States attorneys that are responsible for the implementation of the attorney general policy. Um, in terms of uh, the, this, maybe the Smart on Crime initiative in particular, again, if we're talking about one way of addressing this is, is a, you know, a consensus among a small, small group of people who then communicate that to a larger group but then eventually communicate that to a very large group of frontline government employees. And this, this wouldn't just be AUSAs. This would be district attorneys. This would be probation, parole, lots of people. Um, you know, you, you, I'm, I hope your buddies in Tennessee will not be angry if you divulge this, but what was, what was the atmosphere like afterwards before? I mean, if we're just talking about how smoothly do these kinds of policy changes go? I think anytime there's a policy change, there's a period of adjustment. Uh, but my experience was assistant United States attorneys tend to be government servants who realize that in the, at the end of the day, they have a boss and you do what your boss says or you might not be working there anymore, right? Uh, so <laughs> you, the, uh, you follow whatever the, um, the policy judgments of the attorney general are, and 
as an assistant U.S. attorney or as any other uh, department attorney, uh, it's way above my pay grade to make those policy determinations. The attorney general makes them. Uh, my job is to go into court and advocate for them. Uh, I've been in a position, actually, I guess once I thought about whether I was there before or after I was there, uh, a little bit after um, some of the changes had started. And I actually remember having to change a position that I had taken. I had taken a position. Uh, the policy changed. I had to go back into court and change the position. And when you go back into court and change the position, you go back into court and you advocate that the position that has been changed is the correct position because my client has directed me that that's the position that I'm supposed to take. Uh, whether I liked it or not is really, uh, no one asked. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there is that kind of potential. I mean, assuming, and I, and I, um, and Leo, you can probably speak to this. I know that you also work with, with frontline people sometimes, that, that uh, it's a lot of times when I've talked to probation or parole officers or police officers, um, a lot of it is like, why are you coming to me with this? You are not paying me. Your tax dollars are not paying me to make the law. It is to enforce the law to the best of my ability. And, and we can tangle over that another time. But for the most part, it does seem to be the case that when we're yelling at people for following orders, all connotations of that phrase aside, that we are kind of yelling at the wrong people um, and that maybe we should be setting um, an environment where people at the top feel more welcome to change positions, regardless of whatever positions they'd held in the past, so that everyone beneath them um, is also able to change their positions regardless of what positions they've held in the past. I mean, I think that's... Absolutely true, and uh, legal environment, the legal architecture that we have for addressing drug issues is primarily focused on punishment, as the previous speaker alluded to. Um, so we would not uh, necessarily expect law enforcement, whether prosecutors or police officers, to take a different approach. But actually, if you look around the country, um, you know, I wouldn't minimize the, the importance of discretion. Discretion is a really important tool. Um, prosecutors exercise a lot of discretion. Police officers exercise a lot of discretions, uh, discretion. So the uh, program that I alluded to earlier, which is where police departments have instituted um, basically limited amnesty and said, if you show up to a police department and you say you have a problem, we will connect you to a drug treatment. It's called PARI, uh, Police Assisted Addiction uh, referral something. Um, <laughs> sorry, I, I should know this, but initiative. initiative. Thank you, June. Um, so PARI uh, is an example of local police innovation where police officers, chiefs, have said, look, we, people are dying in our community, and the treatment system is completely dysfunctional, so we're going to take it upon ourselves to extend this amnesty have people come in, we will connect them to services, and we will help them, uh, you know, basically jump the line to treatment. The fact that there is a line is completely ridiculous. Um, but if people want help, they can show up to the police department and, and receive assistance. Um, PARI is now in 200-plus uh, communities across the United States. And... Um, you know, again, local innovation, using enforcement discretion to reframe the role of police. 
Um, I applaud the initiative. I think important questions need to be asked about whether or not police need to be playing this health navigator role. Um, the reality is that in many communities around the United States, as going back to this idea of investment, it is the only functional government agency in many places. There is no other place you can go. And so to say that we need to completely, you know, like ideally I would say police shouldn't be playing this role. This role should be played by healthcare navigators whose job it is to connect people to services and we need to have treatment on demand. From a harm, you know, I'm, I'm a harm reduction sort of scholar and that's my frame. And from a harm reduction perspective, you need to see the world as it is and not as it should be. And where we are in this country is that police oftentimes is the only place that's functional if they're open 24 hours a day, they're going to, you know, if you make a call, they'll come help you. So, so in that context, okay, well, let's work with that. So if police are going to be referring you to treatment, let's at least make sure that they're referring you to treatment that works and not to programs that leave you worse off than you were uh, in the first place. Let's figure out how to engage, you know, social workers, other kinds of healthcare professionals in that framework so they can help people who are in need. Um, so I think that there's a lot of opportunity to use discretion um, to kind of move along that continuum of, of reducing harm, reducing risk, um, and addressing the crisis from kind of a standpoint of, of using, you know, local innovation and using discretion, but also imposing some standards um, as the innovation percolates and imposing some standards to make sure that it does more good than harm. So let me move from that in a slightly different direction, but talk about why this session okay, is in a session on criminal justice, why talking about the, what it's one level is a health uh, topic is in a session on criminal justice, and give another reason why the libertarian view of legalizing it okay, makes sense, which is even if the criminalization is reducing the use, even if it's reducing the number of, of opioid deaths, the fact that we're trying to enforce a victimless crime, the try, fact we're trying to enforce a crime where gives police license to engage in racial profiling, in stop and frisk, and all sorts of things, uh, is at the heart of why the US criminal justice system is dysfunctional. Okay? Lots of violence is due to drug prohibition, not just opioids, but more generally. Lots of corruption is due to the drug prohibition laws. Okay? All of the racial tension, the erosions of civil liberties, the disruption in other countries. So there are enormous negatives from outlawing drugs and they infect all parts of the criminal justice system, from prosecutors being overly aggressive to excessive reliance on plea bargaining and so on and so forth. So never mind, even if there were no opioid deaths, we should still want opioids and all their drugs to be legal to make the criminal justice system work more effectively. Those sound like two closing arguments to me. Uh, you want to <laughs> weigh in here, Zach? I, I disagree that this is a victimless crime. Uh, if you... Uh, I'd encourage you to walk into a neonatal, neonatal intensive care unit and look at the opioid addicted babies um, that are born to drug addicted mothers who would still uh, be able to obtain these substances. Uh, look at these photographs of parents who are overdosed in the front seat of their car as their young children are in the back seat, or the parents who choose in, to go and get high instead of taking care of their uh, children. There are real victims here. Um, I also think that we have to make sure that what we always come back to is these are not easy 
problems. These are not things that we're going to solve with any simple change in policy. The, the end result is that um, we have a problem here. And uh, we, as a Department of Justice lawyer, uh, we have things that are against the law. And uh, our job is to enforce those laws. And uh, speaking for myself, I believe that those laws uh, make sense and that we uh, should have a prohibition on drugs. Uh, my final point would be uh, I would be greatly concerned about living in a society where uh, we don't regulate incredibly dangerous poisons like fentanyl and where people can go uh, and maybe not even know what they're getting um, or become extremely addicted to these substances as young people. Uh, I think that is the system perfect? Absolutely not. Could we improve things? Totally. Are a lot of the points that were made by the prior speaker and by my co-panelists today about the way that we treat addiction, the way that we treat mental illness, are those valid? Yes. Do we need to make great improvements there? Absolutely. And if we could make improvements there, could we greatly reduce the problem? Absolutely. And so I, I hope that we can continue to explore ways to improve drug treatment. We do need to improve our mental health treatment. I've dealt with that issue with a loved one. I understand it. And, and the system uh, does not effectively handle those issues. And those people do end up turning to, to drugs and to crime. And we need to make sure that we address those. But I just don't think the answer to that is to completely pull back from uh, any regulation. So I respectfully disagree. I understand uh, the points. Yeah. Um, I've always wondered if, if law enforcement uh, didn't buy the argument that drug use was victimless. I, I think that distinction uh, has long been used to, uh, you know, sort of bifurcate people who have something done to them against their will uh, versus people who harm themselves and, you know, by extension, their families um, because of choices that they make. Um, but your, your point is taken. I don't know how much time we have left, and I'm looking for Feeney, and I'm not seeing him. Um, should we, we have 15? That sounds like a great amount of time for questions, and I see some very eager people in the audience. Uh, do, we have a, do we have microphone operators? That's great. Let's start at, at the back. You, yes, you. I don't have glasses on. I know that you're a woman, but I don't the know much else. Great. Yeah, sorry. Thanks. I have a cold, so excuse me for my voice. My name is, I'm Nazgul Gantnoush. I'm with the Sentencing Project. I'm a researcher there. And so I have two questions for the panelists. One of them is for Professor Boletsky. I appreciated what you said about addressing the underlying uh, causes, issues. I was surprised to see that the CDC said that during the period of time that opioid sales have quadrupled between 2000 approximately and 2010, there hasn't been an increase in reported rates of pain. I wonder if you could address that. And, and elaborate on what you mean by underlying causes and addressing them. And so for Mr. Belitho, I have a question for you, which is, I really appreciated what you said about treatment. I'm wondering if you could talk about treatment rates in the BOP, in the Bureau of Prisons. And the last statistics that I, that I saw was that it was something like 17% rate of treatment for people with uh, substance use disorder. And a couple of years ago, methadone and buprenorphine, as I understand, were not available. I'm wondering if they are now and what's being done about that within the BOP, which is under DOJ. Thanks. Um, so as far as the CDC point, uh, a, that's a great astute observation. You'll have to ask the CDC what they mean uh, because, yeah, I, it comes from a paper. I actually looked at the source and it doesn't really make sense. 
Um, so what I mean by the structural determinants of opioid, uh, increased opioid utilization, there are a variety of ways of looking at this, and I actually have a paper on this coming out in the American Journal of Public Health. This, the structural framework is something that has been completely ignored. You know, we use the structural determinants framework to talk a lot about different public health issues from obesity to whatever. Um, we don't talk about it in, in the context of the opioid crisis, and I think that's a missed opportunity. Um, there are a variety of uh, reasons why people became more um, likely to use opioids from occupational. So, you know, obviously the economic and employment situation in the United States has changed in the last couple of decades. Um, people are more likely to work longer hours in more manual labor jobs. They're more likely to be injured on the job. They're less likely, so when you're injured, obviously it helps if you have health insurance. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, very many people, especially in the lower wage uh, sectors, did not have health insurance. So they needed to, as Jeff said, function in their jobs. We don't have a great, um, social safety net in this country. And I know, you know, we're at Cato, so, you know, that's, uh, <clears throat> probably disagree with people, some people in the room on that, but I, I feel like, um, you know, we could probably agree that pe if people need to work and if they are, uh, if they have challenging injuries or mental health issues and they need to function, they need something that is gonna make them feel okay and basically get out of the bed in the morning and opioids uh, make that make it easier. Um, we also have a healthcare system that is very much configured uh, to favor quick and easy solutions. Opioids fill that role. If you have a variety of things that are wrong with you, and you have a healthcare provider who's trying to see 15 patients in an hour, they don't have time to really delve in what's going on uh, in your mental health or physical health. Uh, you know, what are the root causes of your problems? They can give you a pill that's going to make you feel better. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of questions about the role of pharmaceutical companies, uh, whether or not they had a role to play in the huge uptick in opioid use. They absolutely did, and they absolutely um, saw a business opportunity and took it to the bank. Um, but the business opportunity was that our healthcare system needed something that would make people feel well and would make people feel like they were getting good treatment. And that, an opioid filled that, opioids filled that role. So I think, you know, we can talk at some point longer about what were those structural changes in the United States that made it more likely for people to need um, this kind of salve. Uh, but that's, that's my basic premise. And I think just on that point, one really interesting graph, uh, if you look at the United States and where the opioid epidemic is hitting, it's very interesting that, uh, sorry to use epidemic, uh, crisis uh, is hitting is that it's not really hitting the entire United States at the same level. There's this stripe, essentially, from the Midwest Appalachia down to some of the South where you're seeing the vast majority of the problems. Uh, and so I think there, you can see that's where the pill mills popped up. That's where that kind of existed. So it's interesting to see how that has uh, not been the case all throughout the country. Absolutely. But to the BOP point, um, 
The BOP has the RDAP program, Residential Drug Abuse and Prevention Program, the 500-hour program that's usually viewed as a very effective program. I know there are always uh, uh, more people who want in that program than there are uh, slots, and I know that's a constant struggle of how to provide uh, more slots with the resources. And also one of the issues that can come up with the RDAP program is you actually have to be in prison for a long enough period of time to complete the program. And so some people are not actually uh, eligible to participate in the program due to the sentences. Uh, As it relates to MATs, uh, I haven't specifically looked at that. I've not heard that that policy has changed. So to my knowledge, uh, MATs are not being used. And I think the rationale, of course, behind that is within a prison environment, uh, diversion can be a very big concern. And actually, uh, Suboxone, which is uh, one of the MATs, uh, is actually one of the biggest problems in the prisons right now. I was actually at a federal prison recently and they're now seeing Suboxone strips are underneath stamps. So they're coming in in stamps or they are sending magazines because the strips are so small. They look like a Listerine strip. They're sending magazines where the pages are glued together and you can't tell it, but inside the pages are a bunch of Suboxone strips. So I think that's probably the rationale behind um, that. Yeah. I'll hit the middle next, I promise, right down here. Mike, I don't know if you called on me, but it's, it's Lauren Krasai from Reason, your colleague over here. I know you're blind right now. Um, so I had, you know, thank you all for your comments. I thought they were very diverse and really interesting. Um, but I was kind of hearing just like three different options to sort of fix this crisis. Um, the first is like totally overhaul the healthcare system <laughs> and improve socioeconomic prospects, which... I think it's a little difficult. Second, legalize it all, um, which I'm sympathetic to because I work at Reason. And I hear, like, don't legalize, uh, but keep incarcerating to some extent, but divert more to treatment, more or less, which Leo says is completely dysfunctional, uh, the treatment programs, in, although maybe I'm misrepresenting you the way you're looking at me right now. Um, but anyway, so all three of these options, like, they, they don't sound politically possible. Um, you know, like if I get up on my libertarian soapbox, um, I can advocate for legalization all day, uh, free market healthcare, volunteerism, and non-aggression principle, but I will probably die on that soapbox. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I'm hoping that I can get each of your takes on some incremental uh, approaches to getting to where each of you thinks we need to go. Um, because I think that until we start like figuring out what are some incremental things that we can be doing, we're going to be stuck in this system forever. I mean, legalization just isn't, you get laughed out of the room if you talk to state legislators, especially in conservative states, which um, I don't know if that's ever going to change, but hopefully. Um, but I just am hoping that we'll have something that can that we can advocate for uh, to get us to where we need to be. So I'd love all of your sort of take on that if you want to. So first, on the question, your general question of whether libertarians should uh, despair that we're ever going to convince anyone of our extreme positions, I'd point out that there are lots of things that nobody ever thought would happen that have happened. Marijuana legalization in this general topic, okay, legalization of gay marriage happened very quickly. Even you know, It was only in, under President Clinton that he signed the Defense of Marriage Act, and yet 10 years later, there's a dramatically different uh, situation there. Other things that weren't so good that nobody thought would happen, happened. 
you can all guess what I'm thinking about. Okay? But um, yes, there are tons of incremental things. So expanding methadone maintenance, reducing the regulation of methadone and other sorts of assisted therapies, lets more people get access quickly. Okay? Moving some medications out of Schedule two into Schedule three or four makes them more readily available and allows doctors to prescribe them. Pushing back against the new laws that are trying to put limits on prescribing practices of doctors, things like you can only prescribe a three-day supply, so the patients have to come back in over and over again, and some of them get front. There's a whole set of small things that are happening that are trying to nudge toward more restrictions. So nudging back against those is certainly incremental, is feasible, uh, and things like that. So there, is, there are positive things that are far short of outright legalization, but would still go in the right direction. I really like your question, Lauren, partly because I think if you hear our answers, it, they're probably going to seem much more, there's going to be much more commonality than there was you know, at first glance. Um, and what Jeff was describing basically is like the harm reduction incrementalist approach, which is we need to figure out what works and work towards that. And, uh, you know, the legalization question is a little bit complicated because we do have a legal market for opioids in this country. It exists. Um, in fact, the reason why we're, you know, one of the reasons why we're in this mess is because that market isn't well regulated and in many ways became misused to address problems that it wasn't designed, designed to, to address. So, so I think figuring out how to better regulate the markets that we have and then moving systems that already exist towards, uh, towards less harm and more benefit. Um, the criminal, the, the carceral system is one of those. So the fact that a vast, the vast majority of people who are on the inside behind bars, whether it's local, state, or federal systems, you know, most of those people are in the local state level, not in the BOP. Um, the fact that we do not provide adequate treatment services to those folks is an absolute outrage. People who get into the system, in the, in the criminal justice system, in, in prisons and jails, by and large, have substance use issues. The fact that we have programs like the one that Zach described, um, which isn't rooted in science, is, is really problematic. A lot of those people would benefit. And, and the fact that diversion is an issue indicates that people are not getting the treatment that they need. So from a, criminal, you know, from a, from a correctional official standpoint, I don't want contraband coming in, and so I'm going to respond by kind of cracking down on it. But the reality is that if, you're, if you have opioid addiction issues, you're not getting treatment, you're getting group therapy, uh, which is not science-based. I have nothing against group therapy. It's not a science-based treatment for opioid use disorder. The science-based treatment for opioid use disorder is maintenance therapy. There is no maintenance therapy by, as a rule, in, inside, uh, behind bars in the United States. Rikers, um, the adult correctional facility in Rhode Island, and a few other jails in the U.S. provide limited access to opioid uh, maintenance therapy. It's, by and large, completely absent. We need to make sure that people on the inside are getting treatment. We need to make sure that when people re-enter the community, they don't relapse and overdose and die at 120 times the base rate. People who re-enter the community die at humongously high rates. That's a, a, a absolutely shocking. 
Um, so stop people from dying when they re-enter, make sure people are getting treatment on the inside, and deflect people from entering prison in the, wrong, in the first place, uh, jails as well. Uh, make sure that people are getting assistance uh, uh, on the outside in, 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 in outpatient settings. I think we can all agree that those things are needed, and so moving towards those, changing those systems in a, an incremental way is where I think we can probably agree. I think that the, the Attorney General has actually made clear that he views that we have three approaches here. We need to be doing prevention, enforcement, and treatment. In fact, last week, I think it was last week or the week before, the department just rolled out $58.8 million in grant funding to states for drug court programs, for veterans court programs, for other programs designed to provide treatment um, to individuals. And I think, you know, it's if we had the solution, we'd be doing it by now, and I think it's just part part of it is we have discussions like this help, right? People are talking about this issue now. Uh, those discussions are going to hopefully result in some change and some positive movement in terms of the number of people who are addicted, the number of people who are dying. That's good. Yeah, down here. Thank you. First, I'm going to say. I have stage four metastatic breast cancer, and you can be sure I'm going to get every pain medication I need as my pain increases before I die. That is a given. I don't care who's in office, be it morphine, methadone, or whatever, and I hate the pain meds. Now, I have worked as a clinician licensed with drug and mental health folks, drug court, whatever, this is not a new problem, folks. This has been going on for years. It's just you're hearing about it, be it opioid, be it heroin, be it crack, be it whatever. Uh, in Boston, I mean, in terms of facilities and places for people to get treatment, if you have money and you can get into a good inpatient facility, there's one outside of Boston that is several that is now they're not getting the treatment. The state has gone in there. I forgot the name of it. I used to live in Boston. Um, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about legalizing drugs. However, this is a very complex problem. You can't separate it from the family, from mental health, from mental health drugs. Uh, no drug, drug offender should not be in jail. I'm sorry. The recidivism rate, there's no cure for substance abuse. There's no cure for mental health. There's only control. So I don't need to hear from you. I know how you feel. I, <laughs> you go on too long. I, how is, and I, I've wrestled in my profession and talked with other people in other professions about legalizing drugs. And I hear from police and other, and I've worked in juvie and work with kids and, you know, you know, okay, if we give them meth, at least they know the drug abusers aren't going to break into my house and steal my whatever. To put them in jail, when I believe in drug court and diversion programs, is that really going to solve the problem? And as far as paying for good, and you have folks who have a lot of money, you're not hearing about them who are using your big-time drugs and aren't getting caught. So let me know how in the drug legalization has worked 
and move beyond just opioids, because I know what state you're talking about, but you can be sure it's big in the Midwest. It's big in the South. It's big out in the West Coast. It's even big in Seattle, where I used to live. How, why you believe putting folks in jail and their families, and it is a holistic problem, is helping as the new attorney general seems to think. Thank you. I thought I was told I couldn't talk. <laughs> We're going to have to keep it really short. We are yeah. minutes over. Okay. We're over? Exactly. I'm so, so I'm sorry. I, you know, maybe we should just kill it. Those were some good questions. Um, I should have had a stopwatch up here. I'm terrible. Um, thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks very much.